Welcome back to the Georgia 2024 show. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Quinn. Welcome, Bill. Good afternoon, Todd. How are you doing? I am great. So we're brought to you by the Georgia Record, georgiarecord.com. We need you to sign up for our newsletters. We need you to sign up for our no-ad subscriptions. We need you to subscribe to our Rumble channel and subscribe to the podcast with the Georgia Record if you're out there in the podcast audience. Um, we got hit with another deplatforming off a of channel last night, so... We really want to drive this show and grow the show, and we need your help to get the word out. It seems that uh, word of mouth is is the best way, no matter what they throw at us. So um, we're also going to start growing. You're going to see more and more about CDTV. We are determined to build an, an alternative uh, news uh, platform so that you get a lot of the news from globally that you're not going to get anywhere else. And, and I know that we're doing that. We just need to grow it and get it bigger into more into more uh, audiences, more homes, so people know about us. So please help us spread the word, subscribe to all our stuff, and, and help us out. As far as the world is concerned, uh, we saw what happened in Israel yesterday, and I've been talking about uh, Iran for some time. We had on the uh, Iranian resistance a couple weeks ago to talk about the regime itself. It's obvious that Iran was behind the events in Israel, and um, there's going to be a lot more coming out on this, but what I want you to know is that the Iranian resistance is really the only group that this regime fears. And I just wrote a book about it. It's called Paying the Price, the untold story of the Iranian resistance. You can get it anywhere. If you want to sign copy, just send me an email. But it's available anywhere books are sold. And uh, if you want to get it direct from the publisher, it's historyofbooks.com. But I spent a lot of time with these guys in Albania at their camp after they were evicted from the Middle East and in Paris at their headquarters and I know that uh, this is a story that you really don't know a lot about. It can have really serious Im impact on the world as to whether these guys are extinguished or not, or they continue to pressure the regime for regime change. So pick it up, paying the price, the untold story of the Iranian resistance. I think it'll be something different that you don't normally read, but will be extremely interesting. So with that, we've got a really packed show today, a really packed show. We've got David Cross, our friend uh, on the financial side of things. He's going to talk to us about what's happening in the markets. We've got um, Chris Gleason is going to come on and talk about election integrity. We've got a Hank Sullivan, another election integrity and, and corruption fighter. Uh, we've got a great segment from Glade Miller-Smith, who is our cattleman out in Nebraska. And got a special treat at the end of the show, Brent Beecham, who flew for the Israeli Air Force after he flew for the American Air Force, he's got a really uh, unique perspective on things. He's a classmate of mine at the Air Force Academy. So he flew F-15s with the U.S. Air Force and then A-4s with the Israeli Air Force. And I think will give us a just a snapshot of what's happening in Israel from his standpoint. And Bill, there's one other guest, I believe. Who else is coming on? Well, um, we have an announcement for the Republican women of Forsyth County. We'll handle that at the end of the show. We, uh, we don't have a guest exactly, but we do have an announcement. Okay, let's bring on David. Here we are. David, how are you, my friend? Good, good. How are y'all? So the markets are, uh, wow, people don't really know what to make of them. I, mean, I feel like it's back in that, uh, back when the, the internet bubble blew up and people say, I really don't know how to trade these markets and don't really know how to follow them. So what should people do right now? Uh, where should they put their money? What are your thoughts? Well, we're going we're gonna to dive into that. So Bill, but let's go ahead and pull up, like, I guess, like slide number two. Okay. There's slide number one. Slide number two. This is where we are today. This is the S&P 500. And, you know, what, what we've got here is blue lines represent the long-term trend. 
and red lines represent the short-term trend. And, and what we want to see is a very patriotic red, white, and blue pattern when you're looking at these things. So right now, the market is, is in a short-term downtrend right now, and it looks like it's, it's a little bit oversold. On the next slide, uh, this is the this is the Nasdaq market. It's actually holding up a lot better. And most people think the Nasdaq market is like all technology stocks, but I think a lot of people would be really um, surprised to learn that you have companies like Costco and Pepsi, you know, are are, are in that index as well too. So mm -hmm. it, I look at it. I look at the Nasdaq index as uh, as a as a broader cross section of the of the more growth oriented, more stable companies in the United States, as opposed to like the Dow Jones. The Dow Jones, I mean, I, I think they only throw companies out like when, when they when they actually go bankrupt, you know, or or near bankrupt. So I, I tend not to pay so much attention to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I'm really looking at the at the S and P and the Nasdaq. On the slide number three. So I just used the word oversold. So the market looks like it's a little bit oversold right now. How do we measure that? What we're looking at is we look at the at the percent of stocks that are hitting new highs, like in the last one half of a year right now. And a couple of days ago, I think it was like on like Wednesday or Thursday, the reading got down to 0.7% uh, of stocks. So less than 1% of stocks were at new highs. And that typically tells us that, you know, that stocks have been sold down too much and you're probably going to get a reflexive bounce higher. So we are positioned right now looking for a bounce higher um, in the short run. And the reality is, is, is to, to what you said before, Todd, you know, it's difficult trading, you know, this market, it's very difficult investing in this market right now because you don't know what to expect. And you, we've, I think we're right now we're at the point where it's like 90% plus of daily stock market activity is computers that are trading against each other. And they're constantly trading for, you know, smaller and smaller percentages. So you, you either have to trade with that or you have to understand how that's going to affect your, you know, your, you know, your investment decisions. Next slide. All right. So this just goes back a little bit further in time to, to, to tell you, I'm sorry, this is, this is actually zooming in. So you can see exactly what it looked like a couple of days ago. So again, just the 1% of stocks were at new highs a couple of days ago. Next slide. Um, <clears throat> this is 2008. So Sometimes what you'll see is I'm going to I will sometimes put up slides that'll they'll give you like a snapback in history at a point where you knew what was going on. You knew something terrible was happening or something really fantastic was going on. And it lets you see what some of the parallels are. So here is a you know, I, I told you before on, on slide number one, we want to see red on the top, white in the middle and blue on the bottom. Um, and in, in 2008, we have the exact opposite. We have the short-term trend, which is the red, is undercutting the longer-term trend, and it's heading down. And obviously, 2008 was a terrible year to invest. Next slide. This looks a little bit more like where we are right now. So the, uh, the, the blue arrow on the left kind of reminds me of where we were a couple days ago, where things were overstretched, and it looks like things are, are oversold. And I think we're probably going to get a bounce back. The question is, is are we going to continue to, are we going to bounce up and then roll back over? Or are we going to, you know, bounce up and head higher? And honestly, um, I truly believe right now that most market participants and most investors right now, I think the obvious trade right now, or the, or the obvious decision is the economy is terrible. You can't be invested in stocks. We're headed lower. And I think that's where most people's heads are. And one of the things I've learned in 30 years of investing is that the stock market generally does the opposite of what, of what you expect it to do. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if, if we saw things, you know, head higher, you know, after we get through, after we get through this, um, this, this route that we, that we just went through in the last couple of weeks. Next slide. This is kind of what we're looking for. This is the red, white, and blue pattern. Red is again, the short term, the short term trend. Blue is the, is the longer term trend. And again, the, this is obviously where, what we want to see. This is where, this is where, you know, basically all stocks are heading higher in this kind of environment. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're hoping for, but hope is not an investment strategy. Next slide. So to your question before Todd about, um, you know, like what's going on with interest rates right now, short-term interest rates are really high right now. Um, what you're looking at here is the treasury yield curve on the left-hand side. We, um, at the, the, the very peaks over there, we have anywhere from one month out to, you know, out to six months is the, is where you're making the highest return on, you know, on your, you know, on your short-term invested capital. Longer term interest rates are lower. So you can see the, the, the yield on the 30 year bond is what is that about 4.75 or so versus the short term yield that, you know, is at five point, you know, 5.6 or 5.65. But this is not normal. This is called an inverted yield curve. Mm -hmm. And when you have an inverted yield curve, it generally telegraphs that you're probably going to have a recession. If you haven't been one in, or if you have not been in one already, you probably have one coming. Next slide. This is what things look like two years ago. This is a normal yield curve, albeit the interest rates are at zero. Um, this is just for illustrative purposes. You should you should be paid more as you invest your money, you know, longer term. This is what things should normally look like. Even though interest rates right now are at five, maybe the long-term bond gets out to like, you know, six or seven percent. I, you know, I honestly don't know. I, I personally think rates are probably going to come down though. Next slide. This is, this is a graphic representation of what volatility looks like. So when you hear about things like the VIX index and volatility is, is higher, um, we track that on a daily basis and we're constantly looking at you know, what, it, what is the, what does the volatility look like on a short-term basis and a long-term basis? And just like the treasury yield curve where I said, you want to see it like rising over time. That's what we want to see with a, with a volatility, with a volatility curve, you know, too. If you see an inverted volatility curve, it means that there's a lot of awful stuff that's happening right now because it means that short-term volatility is extremely high. And right now we don't have that, that this, so that we're in a normal environment. Next slide. Mm -hmm. All right. So a lot of the questions that we get from people are, you know, what, where should I put my money? You know, where, what's, what's the best place to be right now? And I'm not going to give financial advice on here because I don't know anybody here personally, but you know, just, you know, generally you have stocks, that's the green stock certificate right there is one place to invest. Another place to invest is going to be bonds. That's why I have this, the, the orange savings bond on the, on the top, right? You have gold and silver in the middle. You have cash on the lower left side and on the lower right side, you have real estate and real assets. Um, and I've got, I've got like a, I think that's a Packard or something like that. Um, <laughs> and the, the whole reason why that's on there is that I've met people through the years that have, you know, that have bought like these really old cars and, you know, we've all been taught that, you know, cars are depreciating asset. Well, unless they're not making the particular one that you want anymore, then that, then it's potentially an appreciating asset. So it's just a real asset. And sometimes people make a fair amount of money off of cars, but you know, the whole point is it's a real asset that's tangible. You can touch it, you can feel it and, and that kind of thing. But you basically have five choices, stocks, 
bonds, cash, metals, and, and real assets like real estate. So let's flip to the next slide. All right. So I told you before, I like to look at, you know, crazy things that happen. I want you to consider Venezuela when it, when it comes to investing right now, where are some good places to put your money? If you lived in Venezuela this year and you put your money into Venezuelan stocks, like their, like their stock market index, whatever their S&P 500 is, I think it's called the, I want to say it's called the Merval. Um, but in any event, their, their stock market index is up 400% this year. And it's not because that their, their stock market's just done wildly, you know, fantastic things and the economy is doing great. It's because their currency has gotten killed. That's on the next slide. So the stock market's up 400%. Their currency is down, you know, roughly 75%. So if you had, that would be like having a hundred dollar bill right now <clears throat> and holding on to it. If you lived in Venezuela and then a year from now, you pulled that hundred dollar bill out of your sock drawer and said, what can I buy? And it could only buy $25 worth of stuff that it, that it, you know, that $25 would have bought, you know, a year ago. So cash is sometimes absolute trash. And I'm showing you this because I think that United States right now, we're on this, I think we're on this trajectory where we're continuing to pump out tons of cash, printing all kinds of money. We are Venezuela. Um, but it's going to take a long time for, for, for this story to play out in the United States. Venezuela is a tiny little country and it's got very little, you know, economic output. So it, it's not really a fair comparison, but in, in, in the end, they're going to, they'll end up behaving the same way. Next slide. All right. So one year ago, uh, if you had said, you know what, <clears throat> I'm going to put, or one, one year ago, one single dollar bought 819,000 Venezuelan bolivars. Today it buys 3.5 million. So again, that's that, that's that, you know, basically four, you know, four to one. If you take eight times four, you get, you know, a little bit more than, you know, 3.2 million. So that's a 328% change. On the next slide, I'm going to show you what would have happened if you put your money in gold, if you lived in Venezuela. Oh, you went too fast. You skipped oh, one. I'm sorry. One more. Oh, how did I do okay. that? So one, one year ago, one ounce of gold bought 1.35 billion bolivars. Today it buys 6.5 billion. So that's 400% more. So if you were, if you lived in Venezuela and said, you know what, I'm not putting my money in the stock market. I'm not going to put it into cash. I'm not going to put it into bonds because bonds, short-term bonds is just like cash. If you buy a short-term you know, bond that comes due a year from now, you, it's, it's like owning cash. All right. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to put my money into gold, you now have 400% more bolivars uh, relative to what you had at the beginning of the year. So that was an effective way to, to maintain your purchasing power. We're blazing through these things. Next one. All right. So learn from the past. There's a fantastic book. If you're into this kind of stuff by Mark Faber, um, I've actually you know chatted with him before. Super, super guy. Um, he travels all over the world, but Again, this is just kind of recapping, you know, what happened here. And I honestly wouldn't even know, you know, to, to show you what happened in Venezuela, to, to, to be able to discern and figure out that that's what's going to happen in the United States. Although in the United States, it might take 20 years for it to happen. It might take longer. It might be shorter. But the reality is, is we're on that path. 
But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't read um, Dr. Faber's brilliant book. And that's out of all the investment books I've ever read, his is fantastic. Um, Last thing on on this on this slide, I'm not going to go through them all because it just recaps what we talked about. But point number five at the bottom says that if you bought real estate, uh, particularly, you know, income producing like rental real estate, you you maintain your your buying power, but it's just not liquid because it, now you're trying to sell this thing. There's not a whole lot of people that are in the same boat as you that have, you know, all these billions of boulevards or trillions of boulevards, you know, to, to buy real estate. So you're not going to you're, you're not in a liquid position where you can turn that into cash. Next slide. All right. So this is just to illustrate what's happened with our money supply, like over the last, I think this is like the last 60 years or so. So U.S. M3 money supply, M3 refers to um, it's M1 plus M2 plus M3. M1 is the dollar bills you have, you know, in, you know, in your pocket. So, you know, you have a hundred dollar bill. That's that's M1, right? M2 is what you have in your checking account, your savings account, and M3 is what corporations have in their like super, you know, super big cash accounts. So M3 is all of them wrapped together. And what you're looking at is the total amount of M3 that, that exists in our in our economy today. Right now it's it's like $21 trillion. If you go to the next slide, this is what the S&P 500 looks like on a stock chart. And on the next slide, we blend them both together and what I'll show you is that the stock market generally keeps up with what's going on with money supply, because if you have more money, some of that money is going to find its way in the stocks. And I just showed you a couple minutes ago that if you invested, you know, in the in the uh, Venezuelan stock market, it was a way to, to maintain your purchasing power. So that's kind of what's happening here with stocks and our money supply. Am I going too fast? You guys okay? No, it's good. All right. Next slide. All right. So what's happening with inflation? So there's a really wonderful website out there called Trueflation that tells you what's really going on under the hood as far as what's happening with inflation. I don't trust what the government is, is printing. Um, I don't trust what the government tells us. So I'm willing to look you know, for alternative resources. Trueflation, I think, is a really cool kind of place to look at. And they're telling you that on a year over year basis right now, inflation is up 2.48%. Now, yes, we did already go up like 18% like a year a year ago or or, or, or 10%. And then over the last couple of years, we're up like 18%. And that's why it hurts when you go to the grocery store because things went up in price, but they have not fallen in price. They're still going up. They're just going up at a, at a slower pace. And this is one of the reasons why if, if, if inflation stays here like around 2.48 or so, I think you're probably going to see interest rates begin to cool off. The Federal Reserve is pushing up interest rates because that's the only thing that they know to do. Um, they're going to either increase interest rates or they're going to reduce or they're going to pull money out of the money supply. I've had a conversation with a friend of mine that retired from the from the Atlanta Federal Reserve. And I asked him about this. I said, you know, in in Confederate in the Confederate states. Inflation during the Civil War in the South was running at 100%, north of 100%. And at that time, the, the Confederates thought that they were going to win. and But they also knew they needed to get inflation under control. So they reduced the amount of money that they had that was that was outstanding. And their, and their inflation dropped from 100% one year down to 6% a year later. I think we're probably going to see, you know, we're seeing the same kind of thing happen right now with our inflation coming down. But the Federal Reserve, um, they're going to keep, They've raised interest rates up to what I would call the breaking point because they already busted um, our regional banks. 
And now we're getting to the point where mortgage rates, I think, are like, you know, we're, we're approaching 8% if we're not there already. Next slide. Yeah, there we go. So there, there's there's a there's a mortgage rates. We're seven like seven and a half percent right now. This has been the the biggest rise in the history of me looking at interest rates, the the, the fastest rise. And what the viewers out there need need to understand is that when when in when interest rates on mortgages go up like this, it means that the average person they can afford less of a house, which means that your house by default is worth less because interest rates are higher. And if interest rates stay persistently higher, then that's going to be a bad thing, you know, for real estate. And it's already proving to be a bad thing for real estate. Next slide. Because here's what's happened. And Bill, you sent this to me, I think on Thursday or Friday, Atlanta's available office space is a, is it a, is it a record right now? Um, some of it has to do with people working from home and COVID and that kind of thing. But the, the reality is, is that 31% of available office space in Atlanta is vacant. I mean, they're, they're going to have to start turning this into, you know, into rentable properties where, you know, where people can live there. You know, I think you're going to see a huge transformation of office buildings being turned into condos. Next slide. So this is the real estate um, index. Um, I, I use something called uh, Telechart 2000 to, to look at different charts out there. And this is what the real estate index looks like over the last several years. It is crashing. It's coming down, you know quite rapidly. Um, interest rates, you know, started to rise in, um, in 2022 very rapidly. And you can see that right in the middle of the chart, it, it says 2022, right above SX 40 right there. That would be the, the peak where interest rates hit their lowest point. Um, real estate hit its highest, highest prices. And it's, it's just been washout since then. So things are being repriced. Next slide. The same thing is happening in utilities. Um, utility stocks, Southern Company, Dominion, you know, all, all these all these companies um, or Dominion Energy or Detroit, you know, Detroit Edison, wh whatever your favorite electric power company is or gas power company out there. They those things tend to trade off of the dividend yield that, that, that they offer investors. And if interest rates on risk free investments and treasuries are going up, that means that the, that the yield on on corresponding investments has to go up, which means prices has to go down. And that's what's happened with our utilities. Next slide. So this is this is a piece of our dashboard of what we look at. Um, and we're going to we're going to dive into each one of these three pieces. So next slide. Market Pulse is this is something we get from Investors Business Daily. So we had it tells you Friday's action stock surge after the jobs report. Um, the current outlook is the, the market is a confirmed uptrend. I agree with that. We had a blowout on Friday. Um, stocks actually went lower initially in the morning. They dropped about about one percent or so, and by 10:30, 10:45 in the morning, they had reversed and were were flat. And by the end of the day, we were up significantly. Next slide. So this is I'm not a big fan of CNN, so don't give me any grief about this. But this is the <laughs> CNN um, fear and greed measure. Um, I find that it's actually it's 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 a it's a pretty well thought out index, and it tells you right now that they that most investors right now are feeling fear. Stock markets don't tend to go down a lot more when when fear is high, and this is not to say that that fear you know we can't go to extreme fear because I remember two thousand eight it was literally at zero you know and in in uh, in twenty twenty we had a couple of days where extreme fear it, I mean the reading was actually zero. But you tend to you tend to want to be buying stocks when 
when the when the fear measure is is where it's at right now, you want to be selling stocks when when the when greed is extremely high. Next slide. Money flows. The orange line tells you that money is going into bonds. The blue line tells you that money has been coming out of stocks. So markets tend to crash when everybody is just jubilant and so excited about how much money that they're making in stocks and when there's a ton of money going into stocks. We don't have that right now. So I think the, the risk of a, of a huge drawdown, I think, is, um, is fairly low. I mean, notwithstanding the events that are that are happening in you know in Israel right now, um, but if we do get a drop, you know, on Monday, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if uh, if it if it was ephemeral and it went right back up uh, shortly after that. Next slide. Okay. There's been a, I've gotten a lot of questions lately from people that are that are saying they're paying they're they're watching this podcast or that podcast and there's this truther that's saying this or or, or that. And I'm telling folks, you know, watch out for cryptocurrency and humanitarian, you know, project scams and that kind of thing where people are saying, oh, you can you can go buy, you know, Iraqi dinar or you can go buy um, Zimbabwe, you know, Zimbabwe currency. And those, those things are going to skyrocket in value. Um, don't buy defunct currencies like the Zimbabwe currency that, that's on the top right hand side. I've actually got one of those things in my office um, right now. I think I bought it for like a buck. I think I bought it for maybe like a less than a buck. And I know I bought like 20 of them. And I gave them away to friends. And now because there's so many of these scams that are going on and people think that these things are going to be worth money, they're going for like a hundred bucks on eBay. So I wish, I wish I had those other 19 back that I gave away so I could sell them, but I'm going to be selling mine for sure. And the, and I've got a bunch of, um, I got a bunch of uh, bolivars, you know, from Venezuela, you know, like hundreds of, I'm, I'm a billionaire in bolivars. Um, but, you know, I bought them because it was it looks like monopoly money. And I'm a big believer that the prettier that currency becomes, the more worthless it becomes. So just be aware of that. Um, don't buy defunct currencies like the Zimbabwe dollar. Understand in a currency reset, which is what a lot of these truthers are saying out there, Iraqi dinars, you may never be able to exchange them for dollars because right now in Iraq on January whatever the first business day of January, I think it's like January 4th, you will not be able to, um, to pull dollars out of an Iraqi bank. You will not be able to go take your currency, you know, to, to an Iraqi bank, deposit your dinars and pull out dollars. You're just stuck with dinars. And last time I checked, you know, uh, Kroger and Publix don't take dinars. Next slide. All right. Lots of advisors out there are what I we're seeing tons of people that are, you know, bringing new accounts to us and that kind of thing. And we're looking at their portfolio and they've got things that are in there that, that people just bought it and forgot about it. So set it and forget it. You know, for your money is a it's, it's a cliche from an infomercial. I don't think it works all the time. You need to work with somebody who sharpens their skills every day. I like to think that that uh, that, that I do and my. My trader, Dylan, he is fantastic at, at putting together models for us and back testing things. And I love George Carlin, too. You know, think of how stupid the average person is and then realize that half of them are stupider than that. <laughs> Next slide. I think we're almost done here. Let's see. So who do we help? People, people sometimes say, oh, I would have called you, but you only work with wealthy people. All right. So our typical clients are busy folks. They're 50 to 70 years old. They want help with the future, with planning. They have difficulty making investment decisions. They don't want to be judged. I mean, I had one lady that said, hey, is it OK if I put 20 percent of my account into gold and silver? 
And I said, absolutely, you can. And she said, she was so grateful. She said, I, you know, the last guy that she was working with heckled her and said, you know, I laugh at people that, that say, you know, put that much money into gold and silver. So next slide, I think is the last one. Um, you know, reach out to us. Let us know if you've got questions. Our, our job is to simply help you make better decisions with your money. And then, Bill, you actually have to go to the next one because that's our disclaimer page and compliance always wants me to have that up there. Okay. <laughs> so I've blazed through a ton of stuff. I, you know, I welcome questions anytime we got them. And I know you guys have got a lot of guests that are, that are coming up, but I'm happy to field any questions or I can take them offline if you want. Well, I, I just have a quick one, uh, I guess an observation. Um, it seems to me that, you know, we never have been in this environment where we have approaching $50 trillion in debt before. So that's like a big issue that could hang over the currency and rates, et cetera. I, I think really what's going to drive the economy and the markets are whether, you know, Trump gets into office or not, because in, in the market, will it's always a leading indicator, right? So it's going to try to figure that out. Right. And, and, and if he gets back in, you could see a massive rise in the markets. Um, but if he doesn't, I think we're in Katie bar the door. That's kind of my thought as to. So if you, yeah, so I, 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 I'll tell you what, it's, it, I think it's interesting. And there's a lot of critics out there that hate Trump and say, oh, you know, he, you know, he, he, he did a tax cut for only the wealthiest people. And what I can tell you is that tax receipts from people who have jobs, tax receipts actually went to an all time high under Trump. Because so many people felt, you know, em emboldened and empowered to go out and start their own business, businesses expanded, and even though we cut taxes, tax receipts went went up. So imagine this: you get more of the things that you incentivize, and you get less of the things that you punish. And then uh, I want to say it was like, you know, uh, last year, um, I want to say like August of 2022. Um, Biden signed, you know, signed his new, you know, whatever his tax package was. And tax receipts are dropping off a cliff right now because people have said, you know, good grief, you're going to punish me for being more productive. I'll just not be more productive. I agree. Thank you, David. We got to move on. We're out of time, but uh, appreciate, appreciate you it, coming on. Thank you. Thank you, David. So, before, well, go ahead, Bill. No, no, that's fine. Go, go right ahead, Todd. Um. I want to talk about your family's health. You might have heard President Biden angrily uh, criticize Americans for not wanting to take vaccines. Um, that, to me, heralds something else is coming. You had Hillary talk about uh, forcible deprogramming. Um, I, I, in, in my estimation, you need to be able to take care of your family no matter what is coming down the pike. Uh, this is going to be a very difficult year. If you go to twc.health forward slash CDM, you can check out their emergency wellness kit. This will support one adult. If you use promo code CDM, you get 10% off. But protect your family, protect yourself, protect your loved ones. Uh, this is one of the best gifts you could give right now because if we get in a situation where the grid goes down or whatever, uh, what happened with Israel, those people weren't expecting what happens. And the black swan, I feel, is coming here in the U.S. So protect your family. Go to twc.health forward slash CDM and uh, get the medications you might need in an emergency, whether that be antibiotics or any kind of bio threat, uh, parasite like a tick bite, or even the new COVID or whatever COVIDs, they have, whatever variants they have coming uh, protect your family. TWC.health forward slash CDM, promo code CDM for 10%. So let's uh, bring on Chris Gleason. Okay. 
here we go. Hey guys. Thank you, Stuart. Hey, Thanks for patiently waiting in the background there. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what do you got for us, Chris? Well, uh, it's been an interesting week in uh, election integrity and campaign finance. Um, we found some really interesting stuff uh, that, has, that has massive implications all across the country. Um, some of the things that we've been doing in Wisconsin have a very large um, direct effect at what's going on in Georgia right now. Um, in Georgia, um, we've identified some really interesting stuff. Um, we have been doing a lot of data work and a lot of data analysis on various uh, PACs and various candidates. And we were, um, we had first identified some of these massive anomalies with the Raphael Warnock campaign finance data. And we've been um, trying to uh, pull queries related to Warnock. And you know, the, it's, it's become uh, glaringly apparent that the FEC has been doing all kinds of things to limit our um, access to the data. Now, at first, one of my counterparts uh, was uh, saying we should give them the benefit of the doubt and we should, you know, uh, not draw hasty conclusions. And I'm like, nope, I'm telling you, something is uh, rotten in Denmark on this. And, <laughs> and sure enough, we get the information. So um, do you know who the new chairperson of the Federal Elections Commission is? No, I don't. You don't? Um, well, this new chairperson was appointed by none other than Joe Biden. And so he made the appointment, I believe it was in February of this year. And um, there was some um, protest out of Georgia over this. Um, a guy by the name of Chris Carr was not happy. And he wrote a letter to the members of uh, the committee, uh, the members of the committees, and members of the Senate about uh, the confirmation of this individual. Well, apparently, this individual who was confirmed now uh, back in May by the Senate is none other none other than um, the uh, former counsel for Fair Fight, a lady by the name of Dara Lindenbaum. And um, kind of funny, um, but not. <laughs> um, what, what Chris Carr did is he, he talked about how um, she, uh, she was calling into question the integrity of Georgia elections. Now, that in and of itself, um, I, I would... I would uh, I would have to agree with her on because we do know that there are problems with the Georgia elections and Chris Carr, his um, consternation over this was based on her saying that the machines were rigged and that, you know, um, Abrams really didn't lose to Kemp um, and that she was perpetrating uh, baseless challenges and spurious claims and yada, yada, yada. Now, 
what I find interesting about this in particular was that, um, one, she wasn't wrong. Uh, there were significant issues with the machines. However, the bigger questions and the bigger issues were her connections with Fair Fight. Now, Fair Fight, they were um, the organization that uh, ended up suing, I believe, True the Vote over the um, mules and their connection to the, the ballot harvesting mules. Well, the other interesting thing about uh, Fair Fight is that they did a lot in Georgia to help inflate the voter rolls, to help harvest the ballots, to raise money for Raphael Warnock. Now, here's the funny thing, right? So I'm trying to get data from the FEC related to Raphael Warnock, and suddenly I'm unable to do that. Our, our connection requests are timing out and all sorts of things. It really shouldn't be happening because all of this stuff is hosted on AWS. So that tells me that somebody at the FEC doesn't want us looking into the Raphael Warnock stuff. They don't want us looking into the campaign finance data there. And that's, that's deeply troubling, deeply troubling. So one of the things that we needed to do, uh, or what, we were, what we've been doing, is evaluating the data in different ways. And so one of the things that we did was we identified all of the donors for Fair Fight um, through their FEC um, reports. And we started looking into them. And we started uh, evaluating these contributors um, who made contributions to Fair Fight, but not only to Fair Fight, but to all these other Democrat candidates. And some of the things that we identified, much like in Warnock, um, there was a nexus with a very large amount of people who were not employed, making thousands upon thousands of campaign finance contributions. So essentially what we have, right, is we have Joe Biden appointing uh, the person who was instrumental <laughs> in helping Raphael Warnock um, raise vast sums of money in Georgia and inflate the Georgia voter rolls. And we've they've made her the chair of the Federal Elections Commission. Now, if you were the corporate counsel for fair fight and you were knowledgeable and understanding of how campaign finance works, which I would assume the new chair of the FEC would be, um, I would I would question um, these candidates. I mean, I would try to question these reports. I would question these uh, donors who were making thousands upon thousands upon thousands of campaign contributions to your campaign, um, to your PAC, to um, <laughs> to these candidates. And so we have to ask the questions, right? Fair fight. They raised a lot of money, a lot of money. Um, 
and so Fair Fight then um, then routed a lot of the money to Fair Fight Action. And when you start looking at the receipts, you see some pretty um, interesting things. Um, massive contributions, um, <laughs> massive participation through this nationwide network of Smurfs. So I would say uh, Biden appointing uh, Dara Lindenbaum um, as the new chair of the FEC is somewhat uh, comparable as appointing Hunter Biden to the head of the DEA and ABF. <laughs> okay. It would be comparable to appointing ba Bernie Madoff as the head of the Security and Exchange Commission. <laughs> okay. I mean, so that's what we're looking at. I mean, that would be putting Jeffrey Epstein in, in, in charge of. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let, if I can, let me ask a couple of questions to make sure I understand it and maybe maybe help folks out that are listening too. So did you say it earlier in the discussion that Fair Fight had been involved in um, actually um, incenting or in some way helping people register or helping registrations in Georgia? Was that part of what what they were doing? That ballot harvesting. They okay. and then they were fight. They were waging lawfare. Okay. against groups then, like through the through the vote yeah so they, now if they receive these, to, money makes the world go round right if they received all these contributions they would see that right they would be their internal records would reflect that i would assume yeah oh yeah i mean yeah. we're we're really at the point of willful blindness on her part and mm -hmm. i mean she played a very large role in the um, in the Warnock uh, rigging, in the Warnock fraud enterprise. And, you know, Joe Biden didn't, he wasn't lying when he said that they assembled the largest uh, election fraud uh, operation in United States history. Yeah. It, it is interesting that, uh, that you found this and that uh, we, we hadn't talked about many of the um, as you said, the political organizations or the NGOs yet, um, but it, it, it's notable that Fair Fight is um, found in your research to seemingly be in the middle of some of these flows. That's more than quite concerning, I would say. There's there's a lot of really concerning things. So as we've been parsing all of this data, right? I keep talking about the people who are making these, you know many, 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 many thousands of campaign contributions at the federal level. Now, what we've also known and what we had identified pretty early on is that it was also going on at the state level. And as we were uh, working on the project, um, the Janet for Justice and Josh Call campaigns up in Wisconsin, this is where things get really interesting. So we knew that, you know, the donors um, in that campaign were making, you know, a fair amount of campaign contributions at the state level for Janet and Josh in Wisconsin. And when we looked at Fannie Willis, we saw some of that similar pattern. And then we, we started looking into 
Kemp. And we saw a similar pattern there as well. And the interesting thing with Kemp is that he also seems to have been a beneficiary of um, an, a money laundering network, much like um, much like Warnock has, much like some of these other people have. And so I find it interesting that Carr, he didn't mention anything about the campaign finance stuff. He only mentioned um, things about the machines. Now, that makes me ask questions, right? Um, should make everybody ask questions. Because when we look at who voted to confirm um, Miss Lindenbaum, we see that in the letter um, Chris Carr had written, um, he wrote it to Amy Klobuchar, um, Roy Blunt, Charles Schumer, and Mitch McConnell. Now, Roy Blunt and Mitch McConnell, they both, despite receiving this letter from Attorney General Carr, they still voted to confirm her, right? Now, as we look at this, we look at, okay, well, Mitch McConnell, um, we had seen a lot of this type of smurfing tied to Mitch McConnell's campaign as well. Um, and what I, what I noticed when I started running queries with McConnell and Kemp, they had some similar donors. And funny thing, um, we have a, a Dave, uh, we have a gentleman out of uh, New Jersey who was a custodian. And this custodian had donated 6,660 times to various uh, campaigns. And he was actually Kemp's number one um, donor in, Kemp, in Kemp's campaign. But when we start looking at the other donors in Kemp's campaign, um, parsing that against our list of campaign finance smurfs, we notice that there are individuals who donated 8,518 times at the federal level. Um, this individual also donated for Kemp. The number two on the list would be 6,710 times. Over, if I could ask, over what period of time are these thousands of transactions? Uh, over uh, a period of several years, a couple of years. Okay. Um, now people are going to say, oh, well, that's a period over you know a couple of years. Well, we're talking like maybe over two or three election cycles. So we're not talking over decades and decades, mm -hmm. you know. Um, what we see is that a lot of this activity um, really ratcheted up around, uh, on the Democrat side, we see it ratcheting up around 2004 with the birth of ActBlue, really gaining some traction around 2008 um, during the Obama uh, campaign, and mm -hmm. then it going parabolic, um, you know, pure hockey stick into um, eight and then 12, and then really gaining full steam in 18 into 20 and 22. It's just absolutely gone bonkers. So, I mean, where we're seeing, you know, um, individuals who are donating, you know, over a span of you know, perhaps 
say eight from 16 to um, most recent 22, 65,000 campaign contributions from one lady in Colorado. I mean, yeah. it's impossible. I mean, you're talking hundreds, maybe maybe a low number of thousands per year at that level, yes? Um, many thousands per year. Many thousands. Tens of thousands so, per year. Yeah. So you probably probably wouldn't be able to be sitting at a keyboard sending thousands a, a year. No. And so that begs the, that begs the question, right? The, the bigger question here. The bigger question is um, willful blindness. How can this not be seen? How can this not be understood? Um, you know, I, I like to tell people, you know, hey, if you don't believe me, do this. I want you to take your debit card and I want you to walk into Walmart and I want you to make one purchase and buy one item. Go to your car, put it in the car. And then I want you to go back in. I want you to do that 44 times in one afternoon and tell me what happens to your credit card. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. So how is this possible? Well, um, through fraud, through automation. And the head of the organization within the federal government that's in charge of catching this stuff, you know, she, she did a really good job of participating on it in Georgia. I mean, that's why, I mean, and, and they're trying to cover it up by limiting um, our API access in the queries that we do with Raphael Warnock on this stuff. What, one more question, This uh, the lady you're referring to. When was she with Fair Fight? Um, 2022. Sorry. 2022. 2022, okay. She'd right. been there for a while. So she was a long, long time um, participant over there. So very much in bed with Abrams. And, um, you know, all of this stuff is pretty interesting. Uh, but when we, when we see that access to data is limited or that they try to obfuscate it one way or another, um, tells us something. That's where we want to be looking. And we also see that within the, within the lookups uh, with the Georgia State Campaign Finance Database. So I think that we're going to see a lot of interesting stuff once we get our hands on all the data for the Georgia elections at the at the donor level there. You've, you've done an amazing number of different things, both at the, at the various state levels and, then, and now federal. And you're not even close to done, are you, Chris? No, I'm just... I'm, I'm literally just getting started and we're building tools and we're building methodologies to route out the stuff because we're finding more and more every single day. So I'll give you an example in, in Wisconsin yesterday. Um, we, I, some of the data that we were doing, we we're bringing it all together and, and things weren't exactly going um, smoothly the way I wanted them to. And I started, um, uh, some numbers didn't match up. So I, um, I, I wanted to do a sanity check and I went and I checked the state database and I did a query and <laughs> I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. And what we ended up finding 
right, is these uh, these campaign finance smurfs. Um, they were also operating at a very high volume at the state level in Wisconsin, very high level, where you have um, these individuals using a, um, a variety of derivatives of their names, okay, um, making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of campaign finance donations at the state level, not just at the federal level. And so what we've done is, you know, um, we've, we've been documenting all of this. So, you know, you've got this one individual um, for Janet for Justice. They had made 75 individual uh, campaign contributions to Janet, right? It, it didn't amount to a whole lot of money in the, in the grand scheme of things. I think it was like a, a little under 200 bucks or under a hundred bucks, but they do that, right? To prevent having to disclose stuff much like they do in Georgia, right? So if you, if you're under a certain dollar amount, you don't even need to give your name. You don't even need to give your name. And Brian Kemp was a huge beneficiary of that. And um, looks like a, Attorney General Carr was as well. So in the 2022 election um, cycle, Attorney General Carr, there was 518 contributions made at a dollar amount that allowed them to not have to disclose who they were. And that worked out to be about $37,776.94. Now, what we know, based on what we've seen in Wisconsin, is that a lot of those smaller donors, you know, the onesie twosies, those are, those are the ones that are tied to the much larger smurfing accounts nationwide. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it really, really is a ring, isn't it? Wow. Well, we need to move on, Chris, but um, thank you as always. And uh, give us a plug real quick for the Justice Society. Absolutely. So we are building some really neat whiz-bang technology and uh, methods to route out this stuff in an automated fashion. And we could really use your help. Um, we're, we're actually, we are filing lawsuits. We are doing real work and we could really use your help at thejusticesociety.com. Thank you very much, Chris. See Thank you next you. week. Thank you, Chris. Always, always amazing work. All right. Thank care. you. Holy smokes. Yeah, we're going long on the show today, guys, but we got a lot of information. Yeah, that's important it stuff. Out. Yeah, that was important stuff. So um, please, while we're uh, bringing you all this uh, breaking information, uh, CDM needs support also. So please support us with our no-ad subscriptions. It's 10 bucks a month. You get access to all of our sites. The Montana Sentinel is launching as we speak. The website is up, but it's got just dummy articles on it now. But in the next few days, it will be live and uh all of this takes a lot of effort and resources and people and uh, we need to just basically get our audience to support us because a lot of our advertisers 
or the, the big advertisers like Google, et cetera, are, are not letting, letting us on their networks. So please, one of the ways we support ourselves with our no-ad subscription, you get access to 13 sites and growing at CDM. Bring in our next guest, Bill. All right. We are uh, fortunate to have Hank Sullivan with us. Hank, thank you for being patient. We uh, we had some fascinating disclosures from uh, Chris Gleason just over the last few minutes and needed to make sure those were heard. So thank you. I'm glad to be here. So Hank, Hank has done just an amazing job uh, with analyzing data coming out uh, with regard to the GOP, the GOP Inc., um, some of the connections between all of this and our, uh, our, our state officials. So, uh, Hank, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> you know, the material a lot better than anybody else. I'm going to ask you maybe if you could give us a summary and, a, and an overview of the last couple things that you brought out. We had you on, I think it's almost a month ago and gosh, you've just been continuing to disclose things. So please. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot for having me on this morning or this afternoon. <clears throat> so a month or so ago, we were talking about the, the basic revelation that is really not new. It's new to me, but it was something that Georgia Record was talking about two years ago. And that is this idea that the Georgia Republican Party has uh, incorporated. <laughs> and, and it's funny because when they say the Georgia Republican Party has incorporated me, most times when you hear someone say that, they really have no idea what they're saying because there's no way to incorporate a political party. It's not lawful to incorporate a political party. In fact, it's, it's tantamount to, to saying, I'm going to incorporate myself. I'm going to incorporate Hank Sullivan. It's going to create Hank Sullivan, Inc. And, uh, and, and so with the idea of building some kind of corporate bubble around myself, corporate shell around myself, because that's what people think. That's what people think when you when you say that uh, that the Georgia Republican Party has incorporated. They think that it's still the party in there, but it's it's built this shell, this corporate shell around itself. That's not what this is at all. The Georgia Republican Party has not incorporated itself. There's nothing you can't do that. Uh, what has happened, and it happened a long time ago, back in 2014, is that the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, John Padgett, created a corporation under Title 14, as opposed to a political party under Title 21 of the Official Code of Georgia, that, that had the same name as the Georgia Republican Party. And so you have the Georgia Republican Party under Title 21, which is a whole set of laws that empower it and restrict it. And then you have a Title 14 corporation by the same name, Georgia Republican Party, Inc., that is under corporate law, which empower and restrict it. What is probably one of the better ways to explain this is that there's certain authority and restrictions on those authorities in both of those titles. And there's no, there's hardly any intersection or union between the authorities and, and the restrictions in Title 14 and the authorities and restrictions in Title 21. And so when you try to say that this Title 21 entity is in Title 14, it doesn't even make any sense. 
There's no way to make sense out of that because the authorities do not intersect. So here let it is. Just, if I can, let me just ask a question to make sure I got this. So okay. a, a political party organized under Title 21 has certain things it can do and certain things it can't do. Right. And a corporation organized under Title 14 has certain things it can do and it can't do. But neither has the ability to cross over and use the authorities and the rights and things of the other. Is that a fair way to put that? That's correct. And I would say that the way that they're doing it is through public, uh, public manipulation of these principles. For example, they've created uh, these, this corporation. And so the corporate, the corporation is, is, um, is led by a CEO, a CFO, and a secretary, whereas the, the political party is led by a chairman, a, a uh, treasurer, and a secretary. So there are similar ideas behind the two, but they're different titles of different organizations. So, but it turns out, see, every time it's changed in the political party, it changes in the corporation. And so if you're, if you're talking about the political party, then the authority for the political party actually goes up into the political party, goes into the, the chairman, from the chairman over to the CEO, which is the same person, and then down through the corporation. But that's not possible. That's not possible. It's, it's not even coincidental. It's, it's something that they have created in order to, to manifest the public perception that this corporation is the political party, but it is not. So there's there's no hey, way. Hey, let me let me ask you a lot of uh, you get these emails uh, from the Georgia GOP and at the fundraising et cetera meetings and at the bottom it'll say, you know, brought to you by Georgia GOP Inc. Inc. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, they're touting the corporation and the political party as being the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they back in 2021, I guess it was maybe 2022. I can't remember, but Chairman Schaefer stood before the, the state committee and told the, the state committee that the Georgia Republican Party is both a political party and it is a corporation. No, it's not. It's not. That's not even close to true. But but that's they're doing this to try to maintain some continuity. And there's a, it's a very dangerous uh, prospect here. There's a very dangerous prospect of all of this because if they, they can't operate a political party out of, out of title 14. And if they do, and if their rules, which they have created rules, which are rules of the Republican party Inc. These, if you look up the Georgia Republican Party and you look up, up their rules, this is the document that you're going to see. Rules of the Georgia Republican Party, Inc. So if that, those are the rules that they're operating off of and they try to, say, uh, sponsor a, uh, a call for conventions, to nominate candidates for political office, that's not legal. You can't do that. It, you can only do that under Title 21. So if you're a Title 14 entity, you have no authority. Like I said from the very, very beginning, there are certain authorities and restriction of authorities on Title 21. 
their authorities and restrictions of authorities on Title 14. If you're in Title 14, you cannot nominate candidates expecting that those candidates are going to be on a, a legal, lawful state ballot. It can't happen. So, so what happens next is, last, well, two weeks ago, I guess it was, we received this document. This is a call to arrange for a series of uh, meetings and conventions leading up to the nomination and uh, uh, the, of candidates to become the delegates to the national convention next year. The national convention is the one that nominates a president of the United States. But this, this document is sponsored and, 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 and signed by the officers of the corporation, not the political party. So here it is. We have a private corporation that is put together in, under uh, Title 14 who thinks it has the authority to send delegates to a national political party convention to to nominate the president of the United States. And the danger, the very real danger of this is that these delegates get to the door and they're not accepted because they were not nominated and they were not delegate. They're not sent according to the, to the actual law. And the law is that title 14 is title 14, title 21 is title 21. And they don't mix. They don't mix. And so the last thing I, well, before I've got another sub substack coming out this evening, but then I had to ask this question. I mean, I hate to make, be so blunt about it, but I had to ask this question. Kemp and Raffensperger and Georgia Republican executives, are they just stupid? I, it's a real question whether these people are just stupid or is their method in their madness? Now, I don't think that they're stupid. I, I really don't. But you to read these and to be knowledgeable about uh, corporations, LLCs, nonprofit corporations, for-profit corporations, and and with a growing body of knowledge about political parties, when I look at this, I think this is stupid. This is insane that these people are doing this. Why are they doing this? It it really doesn't make any sense on the surface of why they would be doing this. So. To understand why they're doing it, I think it's helpful to, to go back into time and find out how did they get here? What was the original actions that brought this about that are bringing this idea of, of that they're forcing? They're actually forcing this political party slash corporation idea down the throats of the party, of the people in the party talking about the state committee, talking about the county committees. We're talking about anyone and everyone who is a member of the Georgia Republican Party or considers themselves to be a member of the Georgia Republican Party. There, there's a real question whether that even makes sense under the guise of a corporation, because it says in the Articles of Incorporation that this, this corporation will have no members. But then the rules, if you get the rules out, it talks about the rules of, the, of this corporation. It is replete 
with references to membership. It doesn't, like I said, it does not make any sense. It cannot make any sense because the authorities and the limitations in chapter uh, title 14 are completely different than the authorities and the limitations, uh, in other words, restrictions of authority, boundaries of authority in, in, the, uh, in Title 21. So they're struggling. These people are struggling to try to explain this to people when it actually makes no sense because it, it has a built-in limitation of, of common sense to it, since yeah. we're talking about apples and oranges. You're talking about uh, one language or a different language. They don't. They don't talk together. Over the past month, as folks have uh, read and thought through your uh, Substacks on this subject, and there's been several. <clears throat> one of the things that's come out is people have said, um, especially folks that have been involved for a while. Oh well, gosh, it's been like this for years. Why would we worry about it now? And you know, that's kind of like yeah. that, that's kind of like saying I've been doing something not right for years. So it makes sense for me to continue doing it. And I'm not sure that logic holds in this case. Am I, am I missing something? No, no. Think about it. This has been, this was going on in 2016 when Trump was nominated for president of the United States. What if in this state or any other States, I don't know who there may be other States that are, uh, that are doing this too, but what, what happens if, uh, say, let's just assume, rightly or wrongly, that Trump would be the nominee uh, based upon the the, the primaries that uh, are authorized by this call for next year. That those 59 delegates get to the national convention, they're turned away. Well, they turned away. Well, they should have been turned away in 2016 because they did it the same way in 2016. But they got away with it. What if they don't get away with it? Well, you can't just keep doing this until you finally just don't get away with it. <laughs> you got to, it, it, that doesn't make any sense. And the people who are counting on the Republican Party, the Georgia Republican Party, uh, whatever that means, to deliver an equitable um, nomination procedure that is going to end up with a real bona fide set of delegates going to a national convention. You can't, you can't bet that that's going to happen because there are people who believe it or not, there's people who don't want Trump to be the nominee for the Republican party. They might look at this and go, Hey, you can't have these 59 delegates because they were nominated by a corporation I mean, and not, the, not a political party. At the very least, it seems to introduce risk. And you would think that, uh, those in charge of the party would say, well, gosh, it does make sense that there's some sort of risk here. We, we need to resolve this so that there's no op opportunity for anybody to challenge us to say that something's not being done correctly. And you think uh, it, would, it would seem logical to expect them to make take steps to clear this up, wouldn't it? Well, Yes, everything you say makes perfect sense. I think you and I ought to be the chairman and the <laughs> treasurer of the Georgia Republican Party. As I long as I'm not be, a CEO, I will be work very be okay. well. <laughs> but what we're having here is uh, there are people in prominent positions in the Georgia Republican Party uh, who are not acting as if they have the best interests of the party in in mind. 
because they're not even acting like it is a party. So again, all this stuff on the surface does not make sense, but I can guarantee you on some level, on some level, it makes perfect sense. If you actually understand what's really going on here, you go, oh, I see. This makes perfect sense. So when people are acting like they are, they're doing all the right things and, and they're trying to, to do a, have a fair nomination and um, uh, primary uh, season next year, um, maybe that's not the case. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe they have ulterior motives, yeah. perhaps. Well, you That's said what you, I'm seeing. You said you have a new uh, Substack coming out uh, tonight or tomorrow morning. Was that correct? Uh, yeah, it'll go out tonight. I think I've just about finished it up. I'll I'll look at it a time or two. Okay. Um, before how do, that, but how can people time. track what you're doing uh, so that they can find you if they haven't already? Oh yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, it's very simple. If you know my name, just spell it out up there on your computer screen. HankSullivan.substack dot com hanksullivan.substack.com so this evening uh probably around six o'clock or so that's when i'll publish it and send it out um what i'm going to be looking at here is the history that brought us to this point because i found it interesting that okay this corporation was was um was it was incorporated in 2014 well and so when did, why did it happen? When did this, this change? Because obviously before the corporation, there was a political party called the Georgia Republican Party. It was under Title 21. But at some point, this political party be, got, it didn't morph. It's still a political party. But somehow it was engulfed in the minds of the public by the people in charge of the Georgia political party, a Georgia Republican party to believe it was incorporated. Again, you cannot incorporate an, an already existing government entity. It, 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 if, if you have a title 14 entity, you can merge with another title 14 entity, but you cannot incorporate a title 21 entity. It doesn't even make sense. If you really know what you're talking about, it doesn't make sense. So I want to find out how this came about. And what I found out is very, very interesting because not only have the powers that be, not only in the uh, Georgia Republican Party, yeah, that thing, not only have they taken steps to try to cloud the issue of the Georgia Republican Party and what it really is, but we're also seeing that, that at the state level, at the level of the secretary of state, the level of the governor, at the level of, of people in, their, uh, in the Georgia archives. Believe it or not, if, if you try to, if you send an open records request right now to find out the records of the Georgia Republican Party going back as far as you wanna go, they have nothing. They've, they've disappeared it. It's gone away. Wow. <laughs> Only thing that you can find is records of the Georgia Republican Party, Inc. Wow. So we're going we're gonna to discuss that. I'm going to pull the veil back and I'm going to show where all this happened, when it happened, who did it. And, and then we're going to talk about why they're doing it.
That's what's coming out this evening. Fascinating. Hank, thank you so much for all this work. This is, I know that essentially it's years of work for all the stuff you brought out, but especially this has been months of work. So thank you. for. There's a lot of people doing a lot of work that are are represented in these articles. This isn't just me. A lot of people out there, really great patriots who are, who are spending a lot of time to do this and our, our hats are off to them. All right. We will. I know we will have you on again soon to uh, to talk about what you're getting ready to release. So, again, thank you for all the work, and uh, we'll see you soon. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Fascinating with Hank as always. Um, <laughs> I, I can't wait to see what comes out next. Over so, you. Uh, so uh, before we bring on our next guest, Children's Health Defense is having a conference in Savannah uh, early November. And if you want to uh, go learn a lot about vaccines, about fighting corporate corruption, about environmental issues, about your health, health issues, it might be an interesting conference. Uh, RFK uh, Jr. is going to speak at the dinner, but the two days are going to be fascinating with speakers. So check, go to childrenshealthdefense.org. Uh, and if you are in the Savannah area or want to go to Savannah and enjoy the lovely town and also learn a lot, so check out the conference November 4th that weekend childrenshealthdefense.org. Uh, bring in our next guest, please, Bill. Okay, very good. Brent, thank you for joining us. Um, we've got a little feedback there uh, on your end. Maybe that's okay. That's better. I don't know. It's something in the system cured itself. So, Brent, you're, you're, ooh, that's bad. Um, maybe that's not going to work. No, I got some kind of feedback loop. Um, I'll drop. If you want me to drop out, I can come back. Yeah, in. come drop out and come back in. Thank you. So Brent is a former, well, not a former. He is a classmate of mine from the U.S. Air Force Academy. He was an F-15 pilot in the Gulf War, and then flew A-4s for the Israeli Air Force. Kind of a unique story, and uh, I wanted to bring him on to let us know what he's hearing in the local Israeli, uh, you know, population as to what happened over the last 24 hours because he does still have family and people there in country. So just try him again, Bill. There you are. About this time. Well, we still got a feedback loop. Just tell us what you're hearing in Israel, please. Okay. Yeah. Um, so as everybody knows, probably yesterday, uh, very early in the morning, um, the uh, terrorist organization Hamas uh, launched a barrage of rockets, followed an hour later by um, a rush on the border where they were able to penetrate the fences and um, entered into Israel with a fair number of um, terrorists. They came by land, they came by sea, they, they dropped drone, uh, they had drones that were dropping weapons into tanks and into uh, fortified positions. Um, they, uh, there was a music festival in, in the south close to the border. Um, in that particular music festival, they found over 250 bodies of civilians that were murdered. And all total, there's about 700 killed, uh, 2,200 or so wounded. So some of those are very serious wounds. So the, the death toll probably will be uh, going up. The um, the, the attacks have continued. There's still terrorists that they've not clear, cleared out of Israel at this point. Uh, there's, you know, 
individuals that are roaming around, uh, they will hunt them down. And in the meantime, you know, as Israel's trying to, to try to figure out what they're going to do next, what they have done is used uh, the Air Force with fixed wing and helicopter assets to uh, begin to uh, destroy Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, forces. Um, I suspect, uh, based on the number of reserves that have been called up, uh, we have relatives in Israel that are that are among those uh, that are being called up, and I suspect this is going to be a long operation. Probably would include a ground uh, incursion at some point. Um, and if that's not enough, the I just heard from family in the northern in northern Israel, in the Golan, uh, they're all on high alert there. The army is fortified in the area. Uh, civilians have been told to stay home and maybe even go into their shelters. So there's a possibility that Hezbollah would uh, join the fight at some point to divert uh, Israel's attention from fighting uh, in the Gaza. So people may not realize that Hezbollah is the Iranian proxy army to the north in the Lebanon area, and Hamas is the, in the Gaza Strip. Um, and obviously our condolences to the Israeli people and to yeah. the horrible... Uh, you know, no one, no one deserves this. And if you're a fighting force, as you and I know, you don't go after unarmed women and children and, and kill them. It makes no military sense whatsoever. Right. So this argument, while well, they're just fighting for their home, is, is garbage. I mean, this is terror. It's murder. So um, anything else you wanted to add, Bill or Brent? I just wanted to get your yeah. take. And you're an Atlanta resident native and just wanted to tell the Georgia people, you know, what's going on with your family. Yeah, and right. And, you know, there's dozens that are that have been captured uh, by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Uh, Jihad said they have 30. There's probably another 50 or 100 people that have been and it's men, women, children. There's videos of children being dragged uh, into into the territory. Uh, so if anyone thinks that this is like you said, this is a justified action. I've, I've seen so many comments, um, particularly here, even in New York, there's some, you know, call to have a day of, you know, um, support for the Palestinian people. I'm thinking, you know, they've given them opportunity after opportunity to, to bring about a peaceful Existence, coexistence with Israel. They have no, actually have zero intention of doing so because if they did, they're going to lose their power that they have. If they're, if they're not a militant terrorist organization and there was a peaceful solution to this thing, then they lose their power. I mean, what, what good do terrorists have to do in a, in a normal civil society? Israel has offered them twice a state with almost the entirety of the West Bank and Gaza. They twice rejected Trump, offered them prosperity, and they rejected uh, Trump. And Biden came in and, and restored the funds back to the to the Palestinian terrorists. And this is the this is part of that end result. Well, Brent, thank well, you for your time. I just wanted a, a brief comment yeah. from, from an Atlanta perspective. Take care. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank right. you. Yeah, bet. So okay. horrific situation. Um, mm. There. Uh, there is a video that you may want to comment on that's up on CDM uh, on Rumble that shows uh, actual action taking place in some of the streets. Do you have background on that, Todd? 
Uh, well, I put that up so we could post it. And, and there, by the way, there's an article on our New York paper, the Manhattan Press, talking about the demonstration in New York today. It's on the headlines. But the video just shows wanton killing of civilians. Um, and, uh, you know, they did attack some military targets. But you have to understand there are laws of war. And if you're an honorable soldier or, milita or military person, you don't you don't shoot unarmed civilians and especially not unarmed women and children. That's just not something that an honorable military, which has a you know, purpose of defending a nation or righting a wrong, does uh, unless you're a terrorist organization. I mean, that's just that's just not acceptable. So, yeah, clearly we'll have more on this, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, there's gonna be a lot more. And uh, please check out our my book, Paying the Price, the Untold Story of the Iranian Resistance. If you want to learn more about what's really behind this, which is Iran supporting the proxy militias of Hamas and Hezbollah in the north and the Lebanon area and Syria in uh, the armies and the terror that Joe Biden just gave six billion to. And also the weapons that we left in Afghanistan, they found all over this conflict in Israel. So the weapons have flowed around the world. Eight billion dollars worth of highly sophisticated and you know American machinery and down to small arms, which are lethal in this situation. So uh, to change the subject, uh, we have a great relationship with Glade Miller Smith in Nebraska. He's a family man. He's a, uh, a farmer and he's a, he raises cattle and he really wants to build long term relationships to feed families around the U.S. with non mRNA, uh, you know, impacted beef. And you can go to familyfarmbeefbox.com and check out what he's got there and, and get be a subscriber and then get beef delivered to your home, which is much more delicious than you'll get in the mass market beef in the store. Um, and you will uh, have a family get together and decide what you're going to cook that night, which type of beef your kids can learn. But I sat down with Glade this week and talked about, we we're, we're doing this series with Glade on self-reliance on homesteading and the like. And uh, Bill, why don't you roll that tape if you can? Uh, I can if, if you don't I think, have it. I think you can, please. Actually, I think it just got deleted. Let me bring it up. Hold on one second. Sure. I can do one other thing while you're getting that, if you would like. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, we had Colton Moore on uh, on a special over the weekend, and uh, Colton has actually been invited to speak uh, at the upcoming Republican Women a Forsyth County meeting that's coming up on Tuesday. So here's the details on that. It'll be at 6.30 at the Polo Club um, at uh, 6300 Polo Club Drive. And uh, there's, uh, I think, a small uh, donation for both members and guests of $10, if I recall correctly. Uh, the key is uh, it'll begin at 6.30. They'll have what they call a meet and eat. And then uh, the start of the program for the evening will be 7.00 encourage a lot of folks to be there. I know that a lot of folks are already up uh, up to speed and will be attending. There will be, in fact, some other elected officials, uh, I am told, in attendance to uh, recognize uh, what Colton Moore has brought forward and his stance on uh, going after Fannie Willis. So give, um, again, credit to uh, Colton uh, for doing it. Give credit to uh, Republican women for holding the event. And the, hopefully we'll see other elected officials standing up to uh, to support the uh, the dynamic. Okay, back to you. Yeah, so uh, I'll I'll go ahead and hit it. Uh, let's hear from our, my interview with Glade Miller Smith. I think you'll find it really interesting. 
We're back with our friend Glade Miller-Smith, who's going to talk about our theme at CD Media, which is self-reliance and uh, not depending on the government, and a little bit about homesteading and a little bit about cattle farming and beef production. Glade, glad to have you back. Uh, good afternoon, sir. It's a pleasure to visit with you here. Uh, thanks for uh, accommodating me as we... Uh, you asked if we could do an interview, and I said, well, I, I got to check some cattle, so as long as we're in the pickup when we're done, I said, we can, mobile technology, we can make this work. So, but, uh, but yeah, you know, going going forward today, so much, we've talked a little bit, and you mentioned, boy, a lot going on in, in the government and in politics, and sometimes it's nice just to uh, take a moment and and think some happy thoughts for a moment. So that, that's, that's kind of what I, I say, I'm stubbornly optimistic, mm -hmm. and you know, we look around and, and I see a, a goal of what uh, I feel convicted that I'm I'm working towards yes. sharing about in in light of the homesteading ideology that's gaining traction and gaining speed. And, and sustainability is a word that I like better than homesteading. And, and you mentioned yeah. how, how can how can we live sustainably? Because there's I've seen some of these things about people are homesteading and that means they go off into the woods and they build themselves a little cabin and then that's where they're going to live for the rest of their days until they die i think and be a hermit and i i don't know like that's interesting i guess but but i for myself i believe it is not good for man to be alone so let's let's balance these two things let's let's not be dependent on uh on on the government and international great big companies and and everything but 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 we don't need to live under a rock until we die either you know so that that idea of community and not let man be alone within this homesteading movement you know i is is important to me you know obviously because we're we're shipping beef to people across the country i don't want to live under a rock but i do believe in the values of how can we provide for ourselves in, in these areas and work together and and in three ways you know the first, you know, how can I provide for myself and my family? You know, that that's kind of that first step of how people can start to be relying on, you know, do you have a garden? Do you have a backup plan? Do you have, you know, some food in the freezer? You know, do you know, you know how to take care of yourself on some basic level? You know, and, and that's all well and good. But then how can we network beyond that? And really a great step traditionally what our founding fathers did and and what uh, we've done through the through the generations and and still to now is is, is that's your church community, and uh, and beyond that you have your church and then you have your community, and so I, I had a couple stories for today, you know, go, looking back, what did this look like historically, you know, there's if we go clear back to the American Revolution, my my wife and I we were just talking and, and discussing the the Battle of Lexington, and I. I would imagine a lot of your your viewers would be very avid history buffs. Yes. And so some of your guys, I'm not telling them anything they don't know, but but you saw this play out, you know, that homesteading action within a community play out in the Battle of Lexington. It's the first battle, uh, official battle of the American Revolution, when 700 British soldiers were marching on the city of Lexington. Now these are these boys here are going to give us a, a model of what it looks like to be self-sufficient, because they didn't sit write out letters and say, "Oh, George Washington, send the Continental Army, come help us." Oh, oh, City of Lexington, let's call nine one one. Like, like, no, there, 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 there is none of that. 
it's we need to take care of ourselves. And so you had families in Lexington that as an individual family, they, they can't you can't do much as an individual family. You go hide under a rock, you're just out of luck. But they're a member of a church. And the pastor of that church stood up and said, boys, the British are coming. They're going to take our town. The pastor of that church took off his robe and led 70 men. And I'm imagining, I mean, and this, I don't know this for a fact, but between 10 and 20 families, I'm guessing, because you'd have dad and grandpa and a few sons, plus dad and grandpa and a few sons. And this guy's got three or four sons and this guy's grandpa's too old. But, but here's the men of the church. 70 dudes went out against 700, exchanged some fire and the British real quick said, I, I don't think this is worth it. They turned around and they went to Concord. And you know what happened in Concord? They got smacked. Yeah. Pastor of a church showed up. He said, boys, we can't let this happen. 300 men from that church went out and they and they went out and they, they did the same thing. They, the, the church stood up against the British and then the, the British said, ah, this isn't going to work. Let's go to Boston. Forty five hundred men from there to Boston were would came out and attacked the British, all members of churches. So we see the church acting and then we see communities within the different churches acting. The government wasn't even anywhere to be seen. This is what it looked like to be self-sufficient within a, within families. And it only worked because there was families that went to church that were part of a community that worked together. It, we don't we don't need the government to, to tell us how to do this. So but how does that look now? So I've got a story of I mean, flash forward to 2023. Well, it's in the last couple of years. So. If, if you go from my farm and, and go north to the next town, a little community of about 500 people, and they're about 30 to 40 miles from the nearest next town. You know how many police officers are in this town of 500 people? Zero. Hmm. Now they got a little school, they got a little bank, they got grocery, they got a few little stores, no police. Somebody had the bright idea not oh, a couple years ago or so, they're gonna rob this bank in this little town of 500 people, no police. So how this worked was guy goes into the bank, robs the bank. Only law enforcement is state patrol. They're 50 miles away or, or the county sheriff, county seat's 50 miles away. So they call the county sheriff said, you know, Jim Bob, <laughs> we got, we got a situation over here. Some fellow from out of town just robbed our bank. You know, here's his plate number. Here's what he's driving. He's headed east on Highway 40. And oh yeah, by the way, I called Jim and Vern and Frank and they're all over him. They'll make sure that they have him for you when, when he gets about 20 miles down the road, you just go find him there. Like the local community said, it's fine. We don't have law enforcement here. We got this. You want to rob our bank? Go ahead and try. They're, they're, I mean, they called the police, but the police aren't going to stop them. But this is what it looks like when when families can work together within a community and you don't dial 911. Now, I'm not well, saying, I mean, I'm all for law enforcement. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But a certain amount of, of self-sufficiency has to be in place. Well, what so you're you, talking about really is lack of control, right? I mean, when we talk self-sustaining, it means you're really not controlled, but you're not you don't have to go to, to, to Walmart and get your food. You got your own. You, you you're off, not off the grid, but you're off of that corporate globalist economy where you can survive and not be controlled by that corporate globalist economy. 
is essentially what you're talking about. I, I think it, yeah, just, just change our mindset to there is a problem, there is a need. To fix this problem or to fix this need, what can I do to solve it? But yeah, if, if we if we think back to the inspiring story of the revolution, to my kind of fun little story of the local American community now and say, all right, how, how do we apply that for us as individuals? I can tell you what, what I'm doing for my family and, and for my family, you know, that first step is how do we take care of my wife, my kids, the surrounding people around us? And, and yes, we we do our best to have a garden. And yes, we 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 have an orchard and yes, we raise some meat animals and yes, we've got heat supply, you know, off grid heat. And yes, we think about all these things, you know? Right. And, and I think that's, that's kind of like what is really captivating some people. Just the thought that you can raise your own food is captivating to some people. Like this is fantastic. I saw a little meme the other day. Um, it said growing food is like printing money. Like, well, I mean, it takes a lot of work, but, but yeah, sort of. Uh, but it's it's worthwhile work. But this this need for relationship goes beyond just that, and and the rest of the world sees it. And and I had an interesting. You probably know way more about this than I do, coming from where you are than than me and the little cattle farm. But turns out your phone listens to you, you know. And then they start advertising what you're talking about. So the other night I I got. I got advertised this because I was visiting with my wife and she was struggling with this, that, and the other. And, and like any good husband, I was saying, well, sweetheart, I don't know what to say. You know, <laughs> like that, that was me being, you know, in that instance, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to help you. So later that night, I get this ad that, that is promoting an artificial intelligence counseling service. <laughs> so you don't have to talk to a person. But I mean, I, I assume it heard me say, I don't know what to tell you. It says, so when you don't know what to say, you can tell this computer and it will not be judgmental and it will and, and it will be comforting. And, and this will be a showed a video of some lady that was so happy because she could tell her computer she was having a bad day. But I mean, the, the world I thought about that because the world knows it's not good for man to be alone. And so take care of your family and then you know, find a church, you know, that I think for me, that's been an important part of our life. We, we call it small group, but we gather together with, with groups of, you know, local people and come into our home, sit at our table, you know, share, share a meal. Like these things build relationships that add value because they allow you to do things you can't do by yourself. It, they allow you so true, to network and do things that you can't do by yourself. So that's, that's, that's what, you know, when you're homesteading, don't forget that you can't do it alone. You you don't want to live. I mean, realistically, if the homesteaders that came out to central Nebraska and were trying to raise crops so they didn't starve to death and like, yeah, we need to do this. We need to raise. If they could have run down to the supermarket to buy potatoes, they would have like that. Now we're doing it for fun and we should. But but, you know, the goal is not to be able to live under a rock and just eat the potatoes that you grew. You know, let's, let's, that's surviving. Let's live, let's be in relationship, help your family, help your, your church. And then the interesting thing that is helping your community now that I think has really dynamically changed. See, 90 years ago or so, 80 years ago, my, my grandfather's, they, they killed a bee for two a week and fed the local community. You know, back in the early 1900s, they would butcher a beef and they would feed their community. 
come get some beef from from Grandpa Smith. Well, now I'm continuing that that tradition, but I send you beef in Florida. Yeah, you know. So the, these are my Grandpa Smith would care about people in his community. Yep, you need some beef in in your in your larder at the time. You know, you make sure you have something good to eat because we're like-minded people. We've got a relationship. I don't know everything about these people in the community, but but I know who they are. For me. I've got these lists of people. Some of them talk, call me on the phone with questions. Some of them shoot me an email. Some of them shoot me a text. We send out beef to these people every week that I think, I really believe that they're part of my community now. Of course and be, they are. So beca yeah. because of this social media and, and whether it's you're building a, a, a conservative news network like, like yourself or whatever you're doing because of technology, I don't think that this is something we live under a rock and forget about technology no let's use these tools to build that community whether it's beef or journalism or maybe you make homemade soap or something you know like build a community with people that are like-minded because there'll come a time when that lady that makes soap you may not be able to find soap but i know a lady who makes soap and she like and and so when it comes down to it and i only have so much beef left in my freezer but, but, you know, but I know Todd down in Florida was expecting me to send him some. All of a sudden, I got extra people around here that said, Glade, we need something to eat. This has got to go to Todd. I'm sorry, sir. And and all go. these people that, that have, like, that's my community. And so when, when the stuff hits the fan, you have to have somebody have your back. Build that community. That's what, that's what the early founders did. And, and that's what we need to do today. And, and not be scared of technology, but not be scared of the relationships either. Well, that, that's so. what I, you know, people ask, well, what can I do in the face of all this, you know, bad things we see happening around the world? And I, I tell them exactly what you said. First thing you do is build a network of local people that you can count on and, and, and you know, and, and come together if there's a crisis. Yeah. And, and local just, I never use the phrase buy local because there's 30 times more cattle than people in my county. <laughs> so the beef farmer would starve to death selling cattle in my county. You know, like I don't, I don't sell local, but local now because of just like you and I are talking and we're 1700 miles apart, this, this works. Like, I think you need people in your, like, and that's what that, I think that's what the church is for me anyways. Those people that come in my home and share my food and, and we do life together. That's one level of community. But it is a brave new world trying to homestead in the in the in the air. I, I think how would I explain to my grandfather that yes, I'm still providing beef to the community and they live seventeen hundred miles away, grandpa. Well, that's all I had with Glade. Uh, actually, it's there's more to the interview, but uh, I'm gonna post that on my show information operation this week uh, so you, people can watch the whole interview. So, Anything else, Bill? <laughs> Isn't that enough? <laughs> I think I think we set a new record today for uh, yeah. val value and content. So well done. Yeah, Thank we're, you. we're trying to bring really good, high quality, in-depth content to our audience. You're going to notice that CDTV is going to grow over the next few weeks to months. There's going to be new shows added. There's going to be longer shows. There's going to be more routinely scheduled shows. And uh, we look forward to bringing that, building that out so that we can have 
a much bigger platform. So please, again, sign up for our newsletters, sign up for our no ad subscriptions, sign up to our Rumble channel, sign up, subscribe to the podcast and uh, spread the word about CDM and the Georgia record, georgiarecord.com. And with that, you got anything else, my friend? No, that's it. Come with us on the journey and and it will be a, an interesting time going forward. So with that, we will look forward to Wednesday's show. Yeah, I'm trying to find the, uh, the outtake I, here. I, I have it. Yeah, go ahead. Talk.